That's a great improvement. Normally you get the speaker notes, needs no introduction, and then you get um, the sort of thing which even your mother uh, wouldn't, have, uh, <laughs> uh, wouldn't have said for five or ten minutes. Politics and public health in the 21st century. What on earth persuaded me to accept the invitation to give a lecture on that subject? Um, the reasons were various. Um, first of all, there was concern for my own comfort and self-preservation, the self-preservation of somebody who becomes uh, an old-age pensioner in two weeks' time, uh, and the comfort and self-preservation of somebody who is gloomily going through Julian Barnes' last book on the subject of death. Why, I thought to myself last Thursday, do I want to get off a plane next Tuesday morning after a few hours' sleep and go off to Oxford to deliver a lecture? Does that show a sensible attitude to private health, let alone to public health? Secondly, what on earth do I have to bring to the debate? Now, it's true that I recently wrote a book in which I dealt in one chapter with the question of epidemic disease. Let me put my own uh, knowledge of the subject in context, the context of the argument of the book. The book uh, sought to argue that over the last 50 years, we've become pretty good at curbing the appetites of nationalism, but that nation-states still remain the fundamental building blocks of international society, though they haven't yet learned to cooperate sufficiently to deal with the problems which no nation-state, however mighty, can cope with on its own, that they need to work more effectively together to deal with uh, subjects from environmental degradation to nuclear proliferation to epidemic disease. And I did need some, um, a lot of briefing and several reading lists before I wrote 12,000 words on epidemic disease, I hope, without too many intellectual pratfalls. Uh, but I was very grateful in particular to Angela McLean, <coughs> who's not responsible for what then turned up in my undergraduate essay. Um, for uh, her help in pointing me in the right directions. Beyond that, my qualifications for addressing the subject aren't very obvious. I'm not uh, a scientist. I had absolutely no scientific education whatsoever. One of my history dons at Balliol, uh, Richard Cobb, who's probably one of the best historians of the French Revolution, whether uh, British or French of the last uh, 50 years. Cobb used to tell uh, one almost endless anecdote, which eventually he turned into a book, about how his best friend at Shrewsbury had been convicted for murdering his mother. And Cobb's argument was that his friend had only been caught by the police because of his friend's lack of any scientific knowledge whatsoever. And the book was called A Classical Education. Uh, and 
a classical education is what I too had, though I didn't uh, kill my mother. Um, and finally, during the course of my career in British politics, I spent no time whatsoever in the Vale of Tears, the Slough of Despond of the Department of Health, so had uh, no post-ministerial anecdotes or perceptions to offer. Then I began to think that it wasn't quite true to say that I'd had nothing to do with health policy um, or health issues over the years. First of all, when I was a young civil servant, I worked in the cabinet office in a department which even then was supposed to bring about joined-up government, um, one of the many clichés of public administration over the years. And my first assignment as a young secretary in the Social Affairs Committee was to act as secretary of a committee which was established in order to look at the demand management consequences of raising the tax on tobacco. And I have to say that the only issue, I don't think it ever got to ministers, the only issue which really concerned the uh, Treasury at the time was not um, the health consequences or the impact on health of adjustments in tobacco tax, but the effect on revenue raising uh, in the Treasury. My first ministerial job was as a junior minister in the Northern Ireland office, responsible under the Secretary of State for all that passed as the normal side of life in Northern Ireland. And that included the health service, though my first visit to a, a hospital introduced me to some of the more brutal realities of life in Northern Ireland. I asked a young charge nurse, rather innocently, whether she was really correct, as she appeared to be doing, to distinguish between Protestant and, and Catholic kneecappings, and she explained to me patiently that, of course, uh, she understood the distinction between the two because uh, Catholics used a shotgun and the Protestants used a Black and Decker drill. But one thing that was clear in Northern Ireland even then is that the public health statistics were, in a sense, as shocking as the statistics for a traumatic injury and injury as a result of terrorism. The public health figures in Northern Ireland were as awful as in, say, Scotland or the northeast of England, in some respects um, worse. Uh, people ate too much uh, of the wrong things. The uh, culinary peak in Northern Ireland was often regarded as the Ulster Fry. People uh, smoked too much, drank too much, and died too young, and not just because of terrorist atrocities. Not long after that, I became the Minister for Overseas Development, uh, a job which I did from 1986 to 89. And there, I became very aware of the relationship between 
governance, uh, poverty, conflict, education and health. I was in the job at about the time that many African countries were first seriously affected by AIDS. I remember a visit to Zambia in about 1987 where the disease was called Scandia after the lorries whose drivers people thought not entirely incorrectly spread the disease throughout East and Southern Africa rather as sailors had spread syphilis around the Mediterranean uh, during the Renaissance years. Many of the uh, countries in Africa, many of the ministers we dealt with were in denial on the subject, despite the heroic efforts of Jonathan Mann and a small team at the WHO, Jonathan Mann who, alas, uh, died tragically not long after in an air crash. Uh, one of the strong uh, opinions expressed in Africa at the time by some politicians was that AIDS was all made up by the West, that it wasn't really a problem for them at all. Uh, and there was certainly one aspect of the discussion of African AIDS in the West, in Europe and America, which um, would have justified criticism. The assumption was regularly made that the problem in Africa was the result of the fact that Africans were more promiscuous than Europeans and Americans. The work of Helen Epstein and others has demonstrated pretty convincingly that there isn't any truth in that proposition, uh, though there are different ways in which you can be promiscuous. Uh, Europeans and Amer Americans have tended to be promiscuous serially, uh, whereas as President Museveni um, recognized the problem in many African countries was contemporaneous uh, promiscuity, uh, so that uh, uh, people were sharing more than one partner at the same time. I think uh, that perception was one of the triggers for Museveni's zero grazing policy in Uganda in the 1980s and 90s. I went to Hong Kong partly as a consequence of the electorate in Bath choosing the next governor of Hong Kong, um, which rather surprised them. Uh, I went to Hong Kong in 1992 and was concerned in particular by two uh, public health issues. One of them was attitudinal. The first was attitudes to disability, to sexually transmitted disease, and to dying. We had to deal with difficult cultural attitudes to uh, physical those who were physically and mentally challenged. Um, the community was in denial about AIDS in particular. I can remember um, visiting my first prison in Hong Kong and being told uh, when I inquired about STD of the governor that that sort of thing wasn't a problem in Chinese societies. Well, we established hospices for those suffering from AIDS with some difficulty, not least because of acquiring planning permission. 
but those hospices have, alas, been all too full. The other issue, which I want to come back to later, was the attitude to drug abuse in Hong Kong, a society which, because of its proximity to Burma slash Myanmar and Southeast Asia, one might have expected to have suffered much more than it did from drug abuse. I think the fact that we didn't suffer as badly as people might have assumed was largely a result of the extent to which drug abuse was regarded as a public health issue um, rather than an issue for the constabulary. Finally, just to complete this um, autobiographical section, my views on the developmental aspects of public health were put into sharper focus uh, when, as a European Commissioner for External Affairs responsible for most of our spending programs in other countries, I started visiting Africa again after five years in Asia. In Asia, I had got used to seeing people whose quality of life and standard of living rose year by year to seeing communities where people were being lifted out of poverty. It was deeply depressing going back to African countries, which I'd known pretty well, and seeing a, a deterioration in quality of life, and very often a deterioration in the quality of public services, including basic health care that was provided uh, for people. So maybe I thought to myself on the plane, against that background. I do have at least some moderately informed prejudices to offer on the subject of public health and politics in the 21st century. And I want to begin with one which is related to my political perceptions. I'm now beyond all human ambition and beyond uh, uh, any political career. Uh, and it's the first of four points that I want to make, but I think it's a pretty obvious one. Health is clearly one of the most significant ingredients of social inequity, both within societies, within a society like ours, and between societies, between, for example, OECD developed countries and emerging countries like China and Brazil, or developing countries like uh, those in Africa. Uh, we certainly know that it's true in our own society that uh, health is a significant factor in social inequality. Travel from my own borough in London, Richmond, about 12, 14 miles east to, say, Hackney in the East End, and life expectancy falls by about 20 years. Uh, you could take the same journey from uh, Cheshire to Moss Side in Manchester. You can travel from one side of Glasgow or Edinburgh to the other and see similar extraordinary changes in the figures. The smoking-related disease figures are usually higher according to postcode. Obesity is greater. Uh, alcohol uh, figures uh, suggest a much bigger problem. 
drug abuse is worse, so that any health map of Britain would fit pretty neatly into a map of income distribution. And the same is true elsewhere. We know that urban China is much better off than rural China, and that many of the 400 million who've been lifted out of poverty in China uh, have uh, become urban dwellers as part of that journey. Uh, I noted recently, I didn't read the uh, original article in Lancet, but I noted press coverage of an article in the Lancet which suggested that some of the health figures in cities in China suggested that the situation was comparable to that in Mexico, whereas uh, figures for the countryside in China seem to be comparable to those in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. The figures of at least health inequity would not, I suspect, have been predicted by uh, Anarin Bevan when he was establishing the National Health Service. And while it is absolutely true that standards of health care have uh, risen as a result of a service which is free at the point of use, uh, however much more we've spent on uh, the health service as a proportion of overall public spending or of our gross domestic product, the issue of social inequity doesn't seem to have been very much affected. How do you affect it? Do you affect it by public education? I'm not hugely convinced by that argument. Do you affect it by market mechanisms, for example, by tax increases? I think they can have an effect, uh, but it depends, I think, to a considerable extent on how courageous politicians are prepared to be in uh, taking on some of the unpopularity which usually is associated with increasing taxation and in particular increasing indirect uh, taxes which are a more socially inegalitarian way uh, than uh, direct taxes. I wonder for example what impact conceivable increases in the price of alcohol uh, have on consumption. I don't think they've had very much of an impact on consumption by, as it were, the middle class. And I think that in working class communities, one of the principal consequences has been not to lower alcohol consumption, but to destroy public houses, which were one of the cornerstones in local communities. People instead get their lager at the uh, supermarket. I think there are cultural issues here which we have to think about rather more and behavioural issues. Uh, I, I always um, thought it was absurd when uh, our former Prime Minister, Mr Blair, talked about the liberalisation of, of pubs opening hours leading to the creation of a cafe culture uh, in Britain. Um, it suggested a a less than adequate familiarity with British weather <laughs> and and B it suggested as well that Mr Blair had never read uh, any of the essays of George Orwell. 
If the equity issue is a difficult one to tackle within a rich country, what about its impact on poorer countries? People in rich countries uh, live longer and healthier lives than in poor countries, and there are a number of reasons for this. First of all, of course, there is geography and environment, which is especially relevant to tropical or subtropical countries. Uh, many of you will know a great deal more than I do about the life and domestic routines of the mosquito, uh, but malaria is uh, a very good example of this. Mosquitoes live uh, longer in tropical heat. In Africa, um, they bite humans rather than cattle, so malaria is more difficult to control in Africa than elsewhere. That, I guess, is why uh, about 90% of the 3 million people, mostly young children, who die each year from malaria live in Africa. Um, I was impressed by Geoffrey Sachs' argument that in the last half century, the poorest regions of the world are largely coterminous with those where malaria is prevalent. But it's not just the environment that's the problem. I think government, or the lack of it, is a much bigger issue. Uh, sometimes there is no government or little government. Sometimes there is little infrastructure because of conflict. And I find uh, wholly convincing the work that's been done by Paul Collier on the relationship between conflict uh, violence and bad government and poverty. Uh, he argues, as you probably know, in the bottom billion, that 70% of the poorest and unhealthiest people uh, in the world live in countries where there either is conflict today or where there has recently been conflict. Countries where uh, it's not an exaggeration to say that it's sometimes easier to start a rebellion than to start a business. The Congo is one particularly depressing um, example of that. It's interesting to compare the, the GDP aggregate and per capita figures uh, of the Congo over the last uh, 40 to 50 years, a country which is rich in resources, with, say, the figures for South Korea, uh, an Asian country which has no resources to speak of uh, at all. Uh, Congo has largely been ripped apart by conflict uh, because of its resources, which have been pillaged, uh, with a result that there have been more fatalities in the Congo than in any conflict since the Second World War. And uh, last year it was calculated that 45,000 men, women and children were dying every month as a result of directly of the conflict or indirectly because of the conflict, because of the uh, breakdown in health services, because of the increase in disease, particularly the increase in AIDS, often used by marauding troops and warlord armies uh, in the Congo 
as a weapon uh, of war. Sometimes the lack of an adequate public health infrastructure is something which has been tolerated, even connived at, by aid donors who've preferred to put their money into projects which looked more spectacular than uh, an infrastructure which enabled somebody to cycle from village to village taking good news and a few basic medicines. Most uh, former aid ministers, if they were honest, would admit, I think, uh, hand on heart, to one or two real horror stories um, for which they had to take responsibility. I spent uh, an inordinate amount of time in the mid-80s dealing with two power stations, one in Sudan, uh, one in central India, whose principal purpose hadn't been to provide local sources of power, but to save jobs in the northeast of England, a goal which was, of course, uh, not achieved. But another project which um, I had to uh, bear the shame of being responsible for, even if I hadn't started it, uh, which was the subject of endless reports by the Public Accounts Committee of the House of Commons, was a hospital in Umbea in uh, Tanzania. It was a cracking, slap-up hospital, just the sort of hospital which might have made a terrific impact on health provision in Hertfordshire or Hampshire. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, nobody had uh, reckoned with the infrastructure which would be required to make a hospital like that work. Um, there wasn't money to provide food for patients. There wasn't money to provide medicines for patients. And there weren't doctors or nurses to look after the patients. Uh, we had, as an imaginative gesture by the uh, Overseas Development Administration and the British Council, recognized that problem in advance, trained a number of Tanzanian doctors and nurses uh, who would in due course go back to Mumbai to work. But of course, when they finished their qualifications, they were snapped up by the National Health Service at 10 or 15 times as much as they would have got if they'd gone back to Mumbai. It was the worst sort of white elephant uh, development project, uh, and I fear uh, there were a, a lot too many of them uh, around the place. I became more and more aware as a development minister of the relationships between primary health care and other development issues but also aware of the importance in establishing health care in developing countries, of working, it's a cliche but it's true, with the grain of local cultures and communities rather than imposing Western models on them. And I think it's a point which is extremely well argued in uh, Helen Epstein's book on AIDS uh, in Africa. And certainly the the countries where the campaign against uh, AIDS has been most successful have been those where uh, that principle has been applied. But the relationship between health, education, and, for example, population programs, family planning programs, 
uh, is one which struck me uh, with particular force. The very first country I went to as a young development minister, youngish, was um, Pakistan. And we'd been operating a family planning program in Baluchistan with absolutely no beneficial effect whatsoever. And uh, while I was uh, in Pakistan, uh, we um, had the results of a survey into why the program hadn't been a success, and there were all sorts of sophisticated arguments put forward. But looking at the statistics uh, at the back of the report, it seemed to me to be perfectly obvious why the program hadn't worked in Baluchistan. Uh, and that was because the figures were for female literacy were so low as to be almost uh, uncountable. There is clearly a close link between female literacy and uh, good primary health care. When I was in Hong Kong, people were writing books, delivering well-paid lectures uh, on the what they called the Asian economic miracle. And the argument was uh, that Asia had been uh, entirely transformed by uh, capitalism, by support for exporting industries, by the encouragement by the state of uh, the price mechanism, by the opening of markets uh, in the West to the goods that Asian economies produced. And there was some truth in that. But there was even more truth, and it uh, underlined the extent to which you can't really argue uh, that there's ever any such thing as an economic miracle. It was even clearer from the work done by the Asian Development Bank that sensible state interventions had been a, a very important and key element in Asia's economic takeoff. Asian countries had typically invested in basic education, in basic health care, as well as in agricultural reform. Uh, and it was the investment in people which had created uh, a pretty well-educated and healthy workforce which, uh, I think, uh, <laughs> managed the economic opportunities uh, which were made available with such significant uh, success. Today, what is plain is that whatever the ethnic or religious or cultural or continental background, where you have a combination of economic opportunity, particularly for women, primary health care, female literacy, and reasonably cheap and easy access to reliable contraception without public opprobrium, the fertility rate falls. And that is true in Latin America, it's true in Asia, and it's true in Europe as well. The population in Europe is uh, predicted to fall by 20%, by Europe I mean uh, the European Union, predicted to fall by 20% by mid-century, with the steepest, much the steepest falls 
in three predominantly Catholic countries, uh, Italy, Spain and Poland. So one can argue, and indeed I have argued, which um, isn't always very popular, that Pope John Paul II had an extraordinary impact on the political geography of Europe, but um, absolutely no impact on the way people live their lives in Europe. Uh, and uh, I think the figures in Italy and Poland are particularly telling. The third point I wanted to make on uh, public health is the relationship between domestic politics and policies and international ones. I spent quite a lot of time at the weekend talking about Afghanistan and Mexico and Central America and Colombia, countries which we often describe as failed states because of their inability to deal with the uh, drug production which takes place in those countries, fueling the habits of societies which we would hate to hear described as failed, uh, like Britain and the United States. A United States which consumes the cocaine from uh, Colombia and the marijuana from Mexico and Canada, which isn't failed. Afghanistan, which produces about 95% of the uh, heroin, which is injected uh, every night on the streets of uh, Oxford or in London. The surprising thing for me is the extent to which this issue, which is important to international politics, is important in generating the principal income for organized crime, a trade worth about $300 billion a year, that uh, this subject has so little serious attention in public debate in our own country or in America. There is, I think, nowadays a sort of consensus that drugs policy has failed in Britain and America. There is equally a consensus that nothing can be done about it. And the argument that nothing can be done about it depends very much, I think, on the feeling that this is a, an issue where rational debate is made impossible by moralizing tabloid newspapers and that the political costs of actually trying to address the issue as a serious public health issue, that this price is too high for any politician to attempt it. But the situation today is plainly crazy. I don't want to compare, though one can, the uh, fatalities as a result of tobacco and alcohol with those as a result of uh, the drugs that we deem illegal. I don't want to talk about the relationship between criminal violence and drugs as opposed to tobacco and alcohol, but we know what the figures tell us. What is worth um, focusing on, however, 
is the fact that when Mr. Blair, as Prime Minister, asked for a report on what impact our drugs policies in this country were having on uh, the use and availability of drugs, he was told in a report which was leaked that uh, drugs were becoming cheaper and were becoming more available, despite the fact that in the last 10 years we have trebled the length of sentences for uh, drug crime and doubled the number of people we put in prison. In the United States today, there are half a million men, women, young men, women incarcerated, uh, a very large proportion of them black, for drug offences, which is 15 times the figure in 1980. And again, in the United States, the cost of drugs has fallen and use has gone up. Uh, in England, there are now, I think, 280,000 dependent uh, drug users, and in Scotland, I think the figure is 50,000. Why isn't this a subject that we debate? Uh, I'm not, as it happens, my, in favour myself of uh, total legalisation or decriminalisation, but there's an argument to be had about it, and there's an argument which should be conducted, in my view, openly and rationally. I do think there's an important distinction to be made, as uh, we did uh, in Hong Kong, uh, not a notably socially permissive uh, society, uh, a distinction to be made between uh, production, manufacture, sale of drugs and use of drugs. And I wouldn't uh, lock people up for using drugs. I would insist on mandatory registration and I would regard it as a public health issue. But there are, uh, there are all sorts of models which have been suggested, um, not least by the Royal Society of Arts, as to how this public health issue should be tackled. And I think it's, it's extraordinary that um, we don't have the discussion uh, at all in this country. Though one thing which is predictable uh, is that during the course of the, uh, I fear, longish recession on which we're embarked, uh, drug use uh, will increase, and doubtless the number of people locked up will increase uh, too. Let me make one, deal with one last issue, thinking ahead to cope with the problems of a new century in which we will be uh, living, certainly those of us in developed countries, living uh, longer and, I hope, uh, healthier lives. We'll also, more of us, be living in cities. The world's population increased fourfold in the last century. The number living in uh, cities increased 13-fold, and that growth in urban populations will continue. It raises, I think, particularly acute problems in some of the emerging economies, um, Brazil, but I'm thinking particularly of China and India. In China, out of the 20 most polluted uh, cities in the world, 16 are in China. The Indians very often talk about the demographic boon 
that they will have with a population increasing by four or five hundred million over the next 40 or 50 years. Only a boon if they provide the facilities in urban India, for example, in northern India, to cope and to prevent the sort of airborne, waterborne disease with which <clears throat> John Snow was familiar in London in the 1850s. So I think there is an important issue for public health policy in emerging economies and developing co economies in growing urbanization. More generally, there is the question of the likely impact on our health of in the environmental change likely to happen regardless of whether or not at Copenhagen uh, at the end of this year governments are able to agree on some post-Kyoto protocol to deal with uh, carbon emissions. Whatever happens now, we'll see rises in sea levels, uh, increasing water stress in some countries, including probably China and India. Uh, we'll see a, a decline in air quality. We'll see changes in crop patterns. We'll see increased uh, flows of migration. And I think we should be planning now in public health terms how we can mitigate the impact of what we know is environmentally in store for us already. Excellent. I'm speaking as somebody who's water stressed. Um, so th those, I think, are some of the um, uh, relief is in sight. Thank you very much indeed. Those, I think, are some of the thank you. background, um, uh, some of the background uh, to uh, public health policy uh, over the uh, next century. I read a year ago with slight uh, with some alarm, uh, Martin Rees's book, The Final Century. He came and lectured um, here a couple of months ago and noted that when he had written the book originally, he had put a question mark after the title, which had been removed by his publishers. He then noted that when the book was um, published in America, where um, people like these things to be um, grittier and uh, more immediate, the title had been changed from the final century to the final hour. <laughs> I, I, I must say that uh, uh, my own assumption is that um, we will uh, muddle through whatever the present difficulties are Gustav Flaubert said at the outset of the Franco-Prussian War in 1870, uh, after this is over, we'll still be stupid. <laughs> and we doubtless will still be stupid, but on the whole, people walking around with uh, sandwich boards saying the end of the world is nigh have not been uh, proved correct. There is a difference between prudence and uh, hysterical alarmism. Uh, one reason, uh, of course, why all of us should be more optimistic about the future is the extent to which science has put pushed back 
um, the frontiers of our knowledge uh, and has enabled you and others to cope better with some of the challenges that we face to our health and to our quality of life. But I think there are important issues of, of uh, governance and of politics involved, as well as uh, the work that's done in laboratories and libraries. Uh, and I hope that um, uh, in developing countries and in developed, the sort of issues which you're working on and some of the issues which I've been uh, talking about today uh, get the sort of uh, political leadership and focus uh, which they deserve and which they also need. Questions? <laughs>